am I from? Inviting um, Christian back up at the end of the service. This is his last Sunday with us for a while, so we will pray for him uh, before he heads out. We'll tell you more about that later. But if you would, open up your Bibles to the section of Scripture that uh, Christian just so wonderfully read for us. And we are in just the, sort of the beginning of this series that we're calling The Kingdom of Heaven. And it's about, uh, we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And, um, and last, or two weeks ago, we looked at how um, the, the kingdom story is revealed in the lineage of the first part of the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And then last week we talked about the arrival of the king and how Jesus was born and that sort of familiar Christmas story that we are, um, that we are um, accustomed to sort of walking through every Christmas and we do our Advent season. And I'm not sure what the Lord has in store for us this coming Advent season, but he does. Um, but, but like last week when I mentioned that we're going to kind of morph your uh, nativity scene a little bit and in, in, in how we sort of generally celebrate these passages in the birth of Christ, we are going to, um, this, this Sunday will be very similar. Because what we're going to be looking at today is, or the, 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 what we're talking about today is the praise of the king or the worship of the king. And, and, and we're going to be looking at this scene in Matthew where the magi or the wise men show up. And Matthew is the only one who shares this story. He's the only one who shares the story of the magi coming to worship the king. Now, in light of what we already know about the gospel of Matthew and, and why Matthew wrote his gospel, why do you think he would be the only one who would be revealing, the, like, sharing this part of the story where these magi show up to worship? Because... His ultimate goal in writing the gospel of Matthew was to, to reveal, to show the world that Jesus is the king that has been promised from the beginning. And the magi, these wise men, were the kingmakers of their day. So he, is gonna he isn't going to let this story pass because he wants to like, drive home this idea that, that they, would, they were coming to, make, to anoint the king and they end up worshipers. Now, we gather on Sundays to do a lot of different things. We gather to be equipped together. We also gather to, um, to, uh, to train each other up and to be more like Christ. We gather, frankly, to sort of rub each other the wrong way sometimes so that we look more like Jesus. We gather together just to, for fellowship and friendship. But the primary, but get this, guys, the primary reason we come together as Christians is to worship Jesus. Right? That is the number one reason we're here. All the rest of the stuff is just an outflow of that. But we are here to worship. The question starts, becomes, though, what is worship? And that's your first talking points question. So, so what do we mean when we talk about the word worship? I'm asking, what kinds of things come to mind? Minds, attentions, hearts, affection. Here's somebody who's been here for a while. Good. What else? Adoration. What else? Forgiveness. Thanksgiving. Good, Evan. What else? Sitting at, sitting at Jesus' feet. Honor. You know, it's getting harder and harder to ask you guys questions that, that might have like the typical churchy answer because as, you've, as you're here for a while and we try to sort of, because in a lot of places, if you went to, a, and I mean churches, if you went to a lot of churches and you said, hey, what do we mean by worship? What would their answer often be? Music. Like we just got done worshiping is what they would say because the music is over. Well, one, I find that personally insulting because I'm like, is the, has the worship stopped 
just because I've, I'm the one now filling the stage? Right? No, we are worshiping through the word of God. We are worshiping in prayer. We are worshiping. When, and guys, what, what Scott said at the very beginning is true. The, uh, the best definition I've heard for worship is anytime, any place, you set your mind's attention and heart's affection on God, you are worshiping him. You could be cleaning toilets, and if you're doing it with your mind's attention and your heart's affection on God, you are worshiping. Now, that is true for worshiping God because we've set our attention on God. But we worship lots of different things. In fact, if you take that definition, you could say anything you set your mind's attention and heart's affection on is something you are worshiping. Now, what we as Christians want to go is, okay, so what does it look like specifically to worship the Lord, right? And so what we're going to look at today is, why does worship matter? Like, like what, are the, what really matters in our worship to the king? And the first question is, the first the, the thing we're going to see in this passage is, who are we worshiping? Like, who, like who are we coming to in worship? Then we're going to look at, what does it look like when we're falsely worshiping? And at some point, guys, we are all guilty of false worship at some level. And then the last thing we're going to look at is, what is our ultimate response in worship to the king? And that's what this passage is going to show us. So hopefully you are in Matthew chapter 2, unlike me, because I didn't turn there. So we're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to jump right into answering this question of, of what, is it, what matters in our worship to the king. And the first thing that Matthew's going to show us is, it matters whom you come to in worship. So Jesus has already been born. We looked at that last week. And now some time has passed. And what we're going to see in this, in, this, um, in this scene is he's going to point out like four main elements of, of the Magi coming to worship Jesus. So let's just pick it up in verse 1 and we'll see where the Lord takes it. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, these were the Magi, from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king had heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And, and the assembly of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophets, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are you by, means, are you by no means least among the, the rulers of Judah, for from you will come a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. So, like I said, we're going to look at like sort of these, these four things, these, uh, these four aspects in this one little section of what, of what, he's, of, of what Matthew is emphasizing. So, he, so, like, so, so we're going to look at like, some characters, Herod and the Magi. Who are these people and what were they doing? And we're going to look at the star and Bethlehem and say what, what was special about those. And so if you would, just sort of, we're going to kind of be back and forth in those six verses. So, so here's the, my first thing is, who was this King Herod? So the King Herod was not the King Herod that we read about at the end of the gospel. Herod Antipas was the king when Jesus was crucified. Right? This is not him. King Herod was Herod the Great. Now Herod the Great has a backstory, like a big one. And it messed him up. Because we're going to see a little bit today and a whole lot more next week when we get to the persecution of the king that Herod was not a nice dude. In fact, Herod was called Herod the Great. He should have been called Herod the Paranoid. 
Here's why, though, and this was something, I, I did not know this in, in, in all my years. I did not realize Herod was not Jewish. Herod was from the, was from the line of Esau. So the Jewish people come from the line, of, we're going all the way back, we're not going to turn there, but, but Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob also had Esau. And Herod flows from that lineage. Now, so how does he end up king of the Jews at the time? Because he is king of Israel at the time. He ends up there because the Romans put him there. So, he's, so here he is. He's not really Jewish. He's practicing Judaism because he's from that sort of culture. And the Romans are like, hey, we're going to put somebody there they intentionally don't like, and he doesn't like them. So here's what ends up happening. Herod spends his whole life knowing the people don't like him, even though he's doing some pretty, pretty good things in some ways, like for them, like economically and stuff. But the people don't like him because he's not Jewish, and he's terrified of losing power. He was a train wreck. In fact, it was said of, it was said of Herod, you are safer being a pig in Herod's family than you were being one of his sons. And the reason for that is he wouldn't eat bacon because he wanted to look good for the Jewish people, and they wouldn't eat pig. But he killed his own children to keep them from being king. He took his multiple time, multiple children, but at least one time he takes his wife and his son and he has them killed in front of him because he doesn't want them to, to try to take the throne from him. He was incredibly paranoid. And along come these magi who are the kingmakers and they open up with, hey, so where is this king of the Jews? Because we've come to worship him. You can just imagine, if you're a completely insecure man, like most of us are, but you're like really insecure, like Herod was, and here come, and guys, this was a big, we don't know that there were only three. We might talk about this. The only reason we think there were three of them is because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that we get to at the end of the passage. But there could have been a bunch of them. And in any case, it wasn't just three dudes riding in on camels like you see in your nativity story. They would have had armed guards. They would have, I mean, it would have been an entourage of people. There's a lot of attention being brought to this, to, to this moment. Here they come, and they're like, hey, and so people are wondering, what are they doing here? What are they doing here? What are they doing here? They're not like us. What are they doing here? And they're like, hey, we're here because we want to worship the king of the Jews. And they say it to the guy who's the king. And he is terrified of losing power. Like, it's, it is actually a wonder he didn't just kill them all just then. Right? It, it tells you a little bit about how much power and authority these magi probably had. So Herod was a mess of a man who ends up dying right shortly, we'll see next week, um, shortly after Jesus is born. And there is some debate about the dates and stuff, and I'm going to let next week deal with that. But, but it wasn't just Herod that was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled. It says there in verse, um, in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now I've given you the backstory about why he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Wait a minute, why would all Jerusalem be troubled? Because, guys, here's the thing. We would rather be comfortable than find Christ. See, he had set them up. Because he was established by the Romans, the Romans pretty much left them alone. And Arvind, business was good. 
And now here come these dudes that go, hey, we're going to come. We're coming to worship the king. They're going, oh, my goodness, you're going to upset the apple cart. Here we go. And rather than go, but we would rather know who the king really is, they go, no, we want our comfort level. So all of Jerusalem is in, a, is in this complete train wreck for, for, um, because these, these men show up. So who were the men? So here's what the men, the men were, like I said before, so they were from the east, which was probably like Babylon, right? So they were, they, they were called wise men from Babylon. So, you, so if, if you know any of your backstory in, in his, or you took the Old Testament survey class, like you should, and we'll, we'll offer it again, jump into it if you've never taken it, um, you should start be thinking right now, oh, okay, so they are wise men from Babylon. Where have I heard those two words connected before, right? Well, the answer is Daniel. From the book of Daniel, you're going to read about, you're going to read part of his book this week in your daily readings. So Daniel was one of the boys that would, when the Babylonians come in and take over God's people in, in, five, in the five, well, it started in like 605 B.C., and they destroyed Jerusalem and the, te- and the temple in 586 B.C., and they take, so this is, this is like six centuries before Herod, and they take all the young men back to Babylon with them. Daniel's one of those men. Daniel writes the book of Daniel. And here's what's interesting. So you say, how did they even know to look for the star? Because Daniel was a magi. Daniel was the leader of the wise men of Babylon by the grace of God. And when he died, he left all of his writings there. Now, people like Jeremiah and stuff took some of those writings, but he left those writings there. And the Magi had, now here's what's really interesting. The book of Daniel is written mostly in Hebrew, except for one chapter, which is written in Aramaic. Guess what chapter it is? Chapter 9. Guess what chapter? Aramaic, Aramaic would, have been the, would have been the language most comfortable for the Magi that were not Jewish boys. Guess what's written in, Ma, in Daniel chapter 9? The prophecy of Christ coming. So six, yeah, a wow. I thank you for the wows. Like, like I have goosebumps, and I knew it before I said it, because I studied it. Okay, 600 years before Christ comes, not only does he prophesy that he's going to come, but he has the prophecy written in a language that those people would clearly understand. Daniel prophesies from the time that the God's people, and I don't have time to do all the backstory of it, it's just an amazing God story. From the time God's people are allowed to return to the land and start to rebuild the temple that ultimately becomes the temple that Herod builds during the time of Christ, from that time to what we call Palm Sunday is exactly predicted in the book of Daniel chapter 9. That's why they were looking and that's why they knew where to go. Right? It wasn't because the star... All we know about the stars that appeared caught their attention. They start digging because they're astrologers. People say they were astronomers. They were astrologers. So they're, they're looking for answers in the stars, right? And, and then it, it appears the star disappears until later in the story. So they have to figure out from Daniel chapter 9 where to go. That's how they end up in the court of Herod. So that's, so that's the Herod and that's Magi, and i got to pick up the pace a little bit. So what about the star? Here's the, here's the, what was the star? Here's the quick answer. Eh. <laughs> I have no idea. What it, what it wasn't, well, I mean, God can do anything you want. It could be anything, because God can do anything. But we have, we have this picture in our nativity scene of like it's a star out in the heavenlies. That might have been the star that appeared w- before they leave for their probably, what, what was probably like a six-month journey 
from where they were in Babylon to get to Jerusalem. But the star that then leads them to the home of where Mary and Joseph are now living with baby Jesus, because it's not right after the birth, and we'll get there in a little bit. So that blows up your nativity scene right there, because the shepherds and the magi are not there at the same time. So, um, yeah, I know, sorry. So, so at, at that point, what is the, the star could have been a lot of things. It could have been an angel, because they are lit. It could, it could have just been a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom of God punching through this universe, like punching through our, like the physical world, kind of like G, when Jesus is transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration and he's glowing. It could have been something like that, right? It could have been, um, it, and, and it could have been just some sort of star-like thing that God allowed to lead them from where Herod was to the actual home where Jesus was in Bethlehem. And we'll get there in a few minutes. So that was, so, so the star, eh, I'm not really sure exactly what it was, but it probably, it was more than, it was more than just a star out in the sky somewhere. And then the last thing is Bethlehem. So why does Bethlehem matter? Well, it was written in our calling passage. Um, John read it. It's, it's a, the, the, the um, sorry, the verse in, um, in, in verse 6, where he says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by you are, are no least of the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. That's a direct quote from Micah chapter 5, which we read. It's also a quote from Isaiah chapter um, 7. And so those two things were both written hundreds of years before Christ comes. So Bethlehem, who, who else was from Bethlehem, by the way, just as an aside? King David. Remember where we started with the genealogies? This is the genealogy. This is the Genesis, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The, the, the Genesis of Matthew, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? It, David was a type of Christ, e even in the sense of being born in Bethlehem, long before it was prophesied that the king would come from Bethlehem. And so, so all that says, so, so, so Bethlehem, obviously you can keep that in your nativity story because it is obviously very important. Right? Okay, so... Last question for this section before we move on. So, just to be thinking about, where are the wise people of Israel? If these, if these multiple, could have been three, could have been two, could have been ten, it could have been a hundred, I don't know, magi. If these multiple pen, pagans from hundreds of miles away have figured out what Daniel had to say and are, are on the lookout for it, why aren't the wise men of Israel figuring it out? In fact, apparently they knew the story because when Herod calls them together and says, so where's he supposed to be born from? They know the answer. He's supposed to be born from Bethlehem. So, so what, why are they not on the lookout? Guys, these are the dudes that become, that are the Pharisees and the Sadducees that Jesus is constantly battling in his ministry here on earth. They, here's the reason they weren't looking. They were not looking for the the Magi are looking for the king because they want to worship, right? The, the, the wise men of Israel, the pastors, the priests, are looking at politics because they're interested in power. That's what they were. They wanted to be the ruling body of that area. They wanted their nation, nation to be strong, and they wanted to lead it. They were not about who the king really was. They were all about inserting themselves in a place of power. And so they miss it because they're, they're not, they weren't even wanting to look for it. Because, and that will get us kind of to our second point. But 
But this last thing before we go to our second talking points question. There is an eternity of difference, guys, between knowing things about Jesus and knowing Jesus. There is an eternity of difference, and I'm using that word on purpose. Your eternity is not hinged on knowing things about Jesus. Satan knows way more about Jesus than you do, than I do. Right? It's our response to him that matters. And that's what we'll see as we finish up the passage. So take a look at your second talking points question. How can we strive to know more about Jesus, but in ways that grow our hearts to be more like Jesus? Spend more time with him. What do you mean by that? Be in his word, be in his presence. Awesome. What else? Good. We're going to come back there. Disciple people. Why did you go there? Okay, that was his mission. Seemed important to him. We love our king. We love, his, we love the mission. Good. I see, I see something else directly connected to that as well, although that's, that's the major point. Yeah. Expect the change, Audrey said. So if we're, if we're in his word and we're praying, we should do that expectantly expecting him to change us from the inside out, which is exactly right. Like, Are we coming to the word going, Lord, I'm not coming here to, to tick a box, to, to check out, to just so I can read and respond and get my journal done so Doug will get off my back. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to meet with the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm expecting him to speak to me. Right? Like, that's a huge difference as well. Right? I, I think to, to, to go back to, to what Jeff was saying, I, I think a huge part of how, because it is very easy to let your Bible, because guys, these guys have just had an amazing Bible study. These men from far away come and they bring sort of this long lost word of God, and they're sitting, and then, and then, the, and then the, the wise men of the, of the area come and they go, well, let's go dig in. Oh yeah, it's from Bethlehem. This is where, this is where he comes from. They've had, and, and it's changed none of them. The only ones that respond are the Magi. Herod doesn't, I mean, not healthily. We'll see that in a minute. And, and, the, and nobody goes with the Magi. Guys, this, I get this. This is supposed to come up later in the message. It's okay. Jesus, the Son of God, is five miles away from them. That's it. These people have come hundreds of miles. The wise men of Israel just got to walk down the hill. Literally, it's a, it's a downhill walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. I've done it. And, and they won't go. Why? Because they weren't interested. They knew about him. They didn't know him. Right? They didn't know the one they were even supposed they, they were studying. And guys, we have to be so careful that we're that that we don't do that. And and I and I think I think Jeff hit a, a really crucial critical thing. The best one of the best ways to make sure we're not just getting puffed up with head knowledge is by being engaged with people in the Word of God. Because that's what'll keep you humble. Right? Like just sitting and doing Bible study after Bible study after Bible study does very little for your Christ conformity. You get in, with, in the mess with messy people and realize you're a messy people too, you start to look more and more like Jesus. So with that, we've got to keep going. So let's, let's look at our next point. So what, so what matters most about the worship of our king? Well, the first and most important thing is, whom are we going to in worship? Like, what is the object of our worship? And we'll finish there as well. And then this, but then the second thing is, we have to recognize when we fall into false worship. 
So look at your next couple of verses, and we're going to see how, see how Herod is falsely worshiping. So if you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, When Herod summoned the wise men secretly, coward, and ascended from them, or, 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 sorry, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's trying to get the details because he's got a back motive to his backstory. And it says, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you find him, Bring me word, and I too will come and worship him. Sounds really good, doesn't it? In fact, guys, understand this. I mean, Herod is the one who, he's the one who built the temple that was the massive temple that existed when Christ was alive. Like, his temple, the the temple of Herod, dwarfed the temple of Solomon in every way. In fact, if you want to put it, so, so if you look, the picture on the right is what the temple of Solomon was. And it was one of the ancient, like wonders of the ancient world. Nothing in all of, of human creation compared to the temple of Solomon. And when Herod starts to reconstruct the temple when he's made king in 39 BC, he, like massive expansion project, right? So you almost be like, well, of course he's worshiping. But what was his goal? His, right, his goal was to make money, right? And, and to somehow try to put on pretense that, see, I'm a good Jew, even though I'm from Esau, because I, look what I've done to the house of the Lord. Now, guys, we can go, okay, but I'm not Herod, and that's not a temple. You're the temple, and we have to be careful because we can get really good at putting on pretense. Guys, how do we know that Herod's lying when he says, I want to come worship him? How do we know it? Huh, what's that? Later he kills him. But, but we don't know that yet, Jamie. I'm sorry, we haven't gotten that far. Thanks for giving next week away. Right? No, but, but how do we know he wants to kill Jesus? Meetings with him in private. What else? He wants power. Guys, what did he do to his own sons? Killed them. Why? Because they were heir to the throne. So this man who's slaughtering his own children is somehow just going to come and worship this peasant child born in Bethlehem? Absolutely not. Now, the Magi might not know all that ugly backstory. I don't know what they know, what they don't know. But I just all we know for sure is that Herod is lying because he's trying to put on pretense. And, and, and what we have to recognize as Christians is we can be so guilty of that as well. Guys, like, like a huge part of what happened to the church in America during sort of that church growth, mega church movement of the, of the late 70s and the revival, the Jesus uh, movement and the revival in the 70s that, that morphed into the mega church movement in the 80s and 90s of things like Willow Creek and the seeker-sensitive model and, and whatever you want to think about all of that stuff. And I'm not here to bash any or not. I'm just here to tell you what it did was it, ma- it created. And then also, oh, in the meantime, while that was going on, we linked cultural Christianity with the church, and we married these two things together, and it just raised up these, not just a generation, but a couple of generations of people that said, of course I'm a Christian because I am an American, and, and I'm even a good Christian because I go to this 45-minute service at this mega church once a month, and, and that's good, and I'm good to go, right? And, and, and what sadly happened, this is what's really sad. I talked a few weeks ago about the de-church people, about the, about the 40 million people that have walked away from the church just in the last 20 years in our country. Most of them came from the younger generations. And you know why? Because their parents were putting on pretense. They were preaching that they loved Jesus to their kids, and their kids saw no difference. 
I tell the guys in our church all the time, I say, guys, if you are not reading and responding to God's word every day, do not tell your children to. Because that's worse. But it is, it is worse than saying nothing than to tell your kids to do something for Jesus that you're not doing. Right? And that is, that's what happened in our cultural Christianity. That's, that is how we ended up in this mess that we're in as a church. And ultimately, that just bled it because we're supposed to be the city on a hill. We're, we're, the church is supposed to be the city on the hill. Not America. But the church in America could certainly make America a lot more bright. Except that we allowed ourselves to shift into this sort of, look at the big stuff we've done. Look at the pretense we've put on for Jesus. But there was no life change. We were all being a bunch of Herods. And guys, and we all have these little moments in our lives where we can still do that even today. So it's the big things that are, like, like I just described, those are like sort of the obvious false worship. Well, I'm not going to worship an idol. Or, but, but guys, what are, what are the, more su- the, the more subtle ways we fall into false wor- worship are way more sinister. And so the last talking points question sort of addresses that. So, so like if, if, the, if the subtle ways we fall into false worship are sinister, we better have some ways of figuring out when we fa- how we fall into false worship. So what are some barometers we can use that will allow us to make sure we're not falsely worshiping? I'm gonna, let me just get this one out of the way. The word of God. Okay, I know that, so don't anybody say that and go, yeah, I got my answer. You don't, none of you get that answer. The first, foremost, primary, probably 75% of everything is, is how does it smack with, how does it line up with God's word? Now, how, what are some other ways we, can, we, we need to barometize, we need to measure like how we could slip into false worship? What are some guards we can put up? What is the fruit? Awesome, that's such a great answer, Scott. What is the fruit? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those things describing your life, your ministry, your effort, your, your interactions with people? Good. That's awesome. What else? What's that? Friendships. What do you mean by that, Teresa? So who you hang with. Okay, uh, so what I love, so, so are they, are, are your friends like-minded, and then where she finished it was so that you can check each other. Because that's why we need the body of Christ. That's what's so dangerous about like the, the small, like I was just, I was just bagging on, on mega churches. They, they have a place. I, I, let me bag on house churches for a minute. They have a place. But the danger in the house church model that is this, I'm just going to gather with people that think and look and act just like I do on every little nuanced part of, of um, theology, on every little nuanced part of politics, on every little, like I'm, I'm going to just hang with them because I'm comfortable with them. Man, those groups, whether they call themselves a house church or not, they are, they are ripe for false worship. Because how would they even know? Well, you agree with me, and we, we're thinking the same way. So, man, we're the two smartest people in the, in the world, so like, let's just keep going. Right? I need, I say this all the time, I need you guys, when you hear something that comes out of this mouth, it's like, what? Like, I need you to come to me in grace and in love and go, man, let's talk. Can we sit down over coffee and talk about that? Because, because,
and, and I'll receive that at the level of saying, because like, like I said, there's a place for mega churches. They're not all, like they, some, they're, there's all degrees. I would say the same thing about house churches. The scary part is there's a whole lot of stuff that is done under the pretense of, well, the Spirit told me, right? Joseph Smith and Mormonism is very, is, is very much, hey, let's just, the Spirit told me, an angel told me, now here we go. So we need, so I'm not, we, we absolutely need the Spirit, but we need the church. No, we, right, I'm so glad you asked. I'm so glad you said that, Debbie. So, and we do have to move on because I have one more point to make. But, um, but here's so, so Debbie just said. So, how do you know? Because because you're, she's absolutely right. We do not want to discount the power of the Spirit to know. Like we are Spirit-filled, Spirit-directed people. It's scriptural. So, how do we know? Well, the answer is back to those first two things. The answer is first and foremost: how does how does what he's telling me align with the Word of God? That's primary. And then this, but then but then even then we can become so self-deceived, and our little group of like-minded people can become very self-deceived. So we need the variety that is the the glorious mess we talk about. That's so it's it's both. It's the Word of God and the one of another's that that help us kind of go. Wait a minute. You're getting a little sideways. Peter could have said to Paul, hey man, the Spirit told me I wasn't supposed to eat with these people anymore. And Paul's like, not on my watch, he didn't. Right? So it takes, it takes that moment, that Galatians 3 uncomfortable moment, to make Peter and Paul look more like Peter and Paul. And it does for us as well. So, um, so with that, so we're going we're gonna, to, this last point does kind of hopefully go fairly fast. So, so what matters in our worship, right? The first thing is, the first thing that matters in our worship is the, the object of our worship. That's the most important thing. Guys, it, what, what or who, because it can be a what, we sometimes sadly worship what's, um, is, is primary. The second thing is guarding your own heart, recognizing our own propensity. Guys, the, 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 the story of the Bible, the human story of the Bible, the human side of the story of the Bible, is just one giant story of false worship. Right? By people who would have claimed God is telling them to do this. Right? So, so we've got to be aware of that. And, but then the last thing is, and this is the most important thing from our part, like our, like our role is how do we respond in worship? How do we respond in worship? Guys, it, it goes back to, so the, so the example I thought of this morning was, we, were just, we went through Romans um, for over a year. So when we talked, we got to the end of the gospel part of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11. Remember how, Rome, how Paul started Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, because of the story of the Bible, because of the grace of God, because of the salvation in Christ, present your body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. What is our response supposed to be to the gospel? Give our lives away. Right? That's the answer. So, so here, he says, so look, so look at what happens. Chapter, or verse 9, chapter 2. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Now, I already mentioned this earlier. So the, so the, so the Magi leave. Why doesn't anybody else go the five miles with them? Because they're not interested. And behold, a star that they had, that they had seen when it rose went before them. Now, there's a little nuance there, like, well, wait a minute, went before them, like, where was it the rest of the time? So they saw the star, then apparently, or, or possibly, the star disappears until it comes to rest over the place where the child was. So that's where it's like this idea where it had to be up close and personal. It could have been the Shekinah glory of God, because that's where Jesus was, 
right? And then it said, but look at what it says here. This is what leads me to believe that the star reappeared to them. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, now, Matthew writes that in a way in the Greek that is trying to convey this is a really important point. Because when, whenever in Greek they wanted to emphasize, there was no punctuation, and they wanted to put an exclamation point, one, they would write verbs in what was called the imperative. They rejoiced, but then they would repeat themselves. The word for rejoiced and the word for great joy is the same root word, kara, in Greek. It's where we get the word joy. It's the root word of where we get the word charis, for grace. Right? And so, he, so what Matthew's trying to say is they rejoiced with abundant, exceedingly overwhelming joy. Why? Because the star showed back up and God is showing them this is it. Here he is. Because he wasn't the only baby in Bethlehem. You're going to see next week, sadly, he was not the only baby in Bethlehem. Because somewhere between 10 and 15 of them, by most census standards of that time, were killed next week. So he, they needed help knowing where he was. So they're so excited. And it says, and, and going into the house, so just picture this. However many of them there are, they're going into this little house. So they're no long, this is no longer in the manger. The shepherds are not there. That was Luke chapter 2. You're going to read about that tomorrow. That was a great time of great joy as well. Different time, probably somewhere between eight months and 18 months after or before this scene happens is what, is, is what most people think. And it says, and they go into the house and they saw the child with Mary, his mother. Notice there's no reference to Joseph, right? Because he's not Joseph's son. He's God's son. And they fell down and worshipped. Guys, here are these mighty, rich, powerful men who came to make a king a king, and they find themselves on their knees worshiping. Why? Because they met God. Because over and over in Scripture, whenever somebody would see something like an angel, or like Daniel, when Daniel would see an angel, he'd fall down and he'd start to worship. What was the response every single time? Get up. Do not worship me. Worship God alone. The fact that these men are allowed to worship proves that, he, that Jesus is king. They would not have been allowed to otherwise. And then he gives them the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You guys, this, this is what we teach on during Christmas. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The gold is a picture of king. Like it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift for a king. right? It, sh- it shows kingdom. Um, the frankincense was the incense that they would burn at the altar for the prayers of the saints. So it's a picture of priestliness. And then myrrh was what they would stuff in the body, that the wrappings of a body that was going to die. It was a very expensive... Um, Spice that, that would try to that would kind of quench the smell of the rotting body, and that was just a, and that was a picture of Christ's um, saving sacrifice, right? But but if, but if we just sort of finish this, so we can kind of land this plane quickly, guys. Ultimately, those three gifts are provision by the sovereign God for what's about to happen in their lives, and that's where we'll pick up the story next week, because they were poor people, and they have to go live on the move for a while. And God provides for them. He's like, hey, I know some dudes. They live 600 miles away. No big deal. They're going to bring you some stuff. It will take care of you. Trust me. Like, what, what they got was abundantly beyond probably whatever they needed. And the last thing it says is that being warned in the dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Guys, I, I love how this is such a great picture of, of how to know God's will. Like so, so for us, so how does all this apply to us? And, we're gonna, and I'm going to finish up my final thoughts here. Is, is 
They saw God move. They saw a star. They had a dream. They, 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 they were looking for evidences of where God was working. They matched it up with the word of God. Daniel chapter 9, Micah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 7. They matched it up with the word of God. And then they acted. Look for where God is working in your life. Where, in, in the, where like out, not just in your life, but in your life. Match up with what you think he's asking you to do with the word of God, and then just step into it. That's why we're still reading about these guys so many years later, because they acted immediately on what they were told or what they saw from what God's grace showed them. Guys, why does it matter? Or what matters most about our worship? It's ultimately from our end, it's our response. And as the music team comes up and we go into our, what we always call our time of response, I, I, as every time I read this, whether it's this scene or the scene you're going to read tomorrow about those shepherds, you look and you go, angels in the sky and the shepherds are coming to the baby and, 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 and now there's these amazing, powerful men and all, this, all the riches they bring with them and they go to this little house in Bethlehem and, and where is everybody else? Why are so many, why does everybody miss them? The greatest event in the history of the world at that point has happened. And the people of Bethlehem slept through the whole thing. Now, guys, if, if in your mind you don't immediately go, how am I asleep? Right? How am I missing him? Where am I missing him? Because the answer was, these were not bad people. They were just busy people. They were not bad people. They were just burdened. They were not bad people. They were just broken people. They were just looking in the wrong place for the solution to all of those things. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for the, um, just the majesty of your story. I thank you for the, for the fact that you are the only one worthy of worship. And I thank you that you invite us into an opportunity to respond to that. So Lord, I do pray right now for those in our midst that, that, that have missed you altogether. That someday soon, your word tells us that you're going to come again in a way that cannot be missed. That everyone will see and every knee will bow. But by then, it will be too late to bow in humble submission. So Lord, I pray for those hearts. I pray for the hearts that have just been too busy for too long, that are too scattered. I pray that, that even in this in this time of response, Lord, that, that they would find you calling out to them. And that they would respond. And for those of us that that have responded but still miss you the 10,000 times throughout the day because we're so busy with our own agenda or running our kids from one place to another or, um, or, or worrying about our bank account or all the things that life does to us as John prayed even during our prayer time. Lord, I pray that, that we would just be able to step back, take a breath. My God, we're right here. Where is the Spirit in the room? It joins you there. The question of life that you've laid before us, Lord, 
is what do we do with Jesus? Our response, let our response,